Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. Today, we speak with legendary songwriter Gloria Gaither, who, with her husband Bill, has written some of the most enduring and beloved songs for the church, including Because He Lives and He Touched Me. Gloria continues to write both lyrics and books, and is an experienced and highly sought-after speaker who is constantly aware of the eternal value a moment holds. Gloria shares some of her early years and how she came to the point in life where she has decided to spend as much time as possible nurturing her most important relationships and finding something eternal in the dailiness of life. Hi, I'm Gloria Gaither, and I'm not sure exactly what labels I wear, but I'm a lyricist, um, educator, uh, speaker. Uh, Most of all, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and um, a wife to Bill Gaither. Um, and mother to three incredible children and seven grandchildren. I grew up in a pastor's home. My parents were converted when I was a baby. So um, my whole life, because they were, they began to follow Christ late in their lives, in their 30s, um, my childhood was full of excitement at every night when they got together at the, at the dinner table about what they had discovered in Scripture. My life was just full of um, evangelists and missionaries and pastors and theologians and people that came through our house. Uh, I guess my earliest desire was to have something to say at our dining room table in um, the discussions that went on around there. And thankfully, my parents um, didn't think children should be seen and not heard. They thought they should be heard if they had something to say. So I always wished I had a way to jump into those conversations. Our, our home was also filled with um, recovering alcoholics and vagrant teenagers and um, people who had no place to go. And um, we were constantly going through our closets to find the clothes that people needed and trying to figure out how the two pounds of hamburger would stretch to feed a lot more people. So... Um, ministry wasn't something my parents did. It was something they were, and I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, I grew up in a, in a home that also really valued education, and I never it never entered my mind to say, will I go to college? It was, where will I go to college? And although we were in a tiny little high school in a tiny little town in Michigan, um, we had no speech classes even, let alone any competition uh, debate or forensics of any kind, um, two different teachers began to enter me into speech contests, and they personally t- took me to those competitions. And they were usually oratory, where I would write my own speech and deliver it. Um, so that that was a um, an experience early on. I won the Michigan State speech contest. My I think it was my sophomore year or junior year. I won the state of Michigan. I met um, President Eisenhower. I had my speech put in the congressional record, and I was in the top ten uh, finalists in, in the nation, which was really a hoot because I'd never stayed in a real hotel. I had never flown an airplane. As it turned out, um, education and communication were my my lifetime pursuits. I thought I might be the first Barbara Walters. There wasn't one then. <laughs> But as it turned out, um, the call in my life that I felt for uh, the mission field because of our dining room table won out, and I went to Anderson University, then Anderson College, and I thought I would prepare to be a missionary to Africa. I, I've always, I was intrigued most, I think, by the missionaries that came from Africa and the African continent. 
So I majored in French for the base for foreign languages, and I majored in um, sociology. And then I, I also, I, I told God, okay, I gave you two. You won't mind if I also major in English because that's what I really love. And he didn't say no, so I did. So I have three majors, and, um, and I um, thought I would be, you know, do something in some other country. When I was a junior, the French teacher, at the professor called me in and said, could you go between your classes and substitute in um, French at a local high school, Alexandria High School. It's 10 miles away. You can walk uptown and get the, the teacher's car and drive to this other town and then bring it back, leave it, and, and then walk back to the campus. And it was the winter semester. It was so cold. But I did that and taught two French classes. And um, while I was there, um, a young English teacher who had, who had been teaching in junior high wanted to transfer to the high school level and began the same day I did as head of the English department. And his name was Bill Gaither. So my trip to Africa took an abrupt turn. And uh, I, never, I never thought really about writing lyrics. I'd written poetry and all other kinds of writing, a lot of um, essay and opinion and that kind of thing. But I really didn't think about being a lyricist until I met Bill. And that not until late in our relationship. But he finally got up the nerve to tell me that he had this other love, which was gospel music, and played me a couple songs. And I said, that's pretty good. And after I, after I said it was pretty good, he told me he wrote them. <laughs> so um, he, um, we began dating, and we were married a year later. And... Um, and began writing together. Um, at first, I began, you know, fixing his lyrics. Cause he's an incredible idea person. He he senses, um, I guess, holes in the culture, and I do too. We we both come from an idea point of view. All of our songs begin with an idea. There should be a song that says this, but there isn't one. Um, so we 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 both are culture sensors. Like, what is the need? What's the hole out there? And um, so once we get that, even to this day, um, he'll be, we have a little book we write down our ideas in, and he'll be messing with tunes that come to him in the night or whenever, and, and then he'll, I'll say, you know, that's a perfect setting for that idea. What I've learned as a writer is that um, I used to think that the more general you could write, the more people it would, you'd identify with. Um, Actually, I've found exactly the opposite. It is the specifics that people identify with. Um, everybody has held a newborn baby and wondered, what will this kid face? Every, I mean, it's whether they're in you know, Europe or Scandinavia or where, everybody's had that experience. Everybody's walked with their children through passages where they had to start coming of age, and you have to start letting go. And it's scary, and it's it's wonderful, and it's frightening all in one on one breath. You don't want them to not grow up, but you're afraid. What if I've not taught them what they need to know? Um, so I I found that um, when we wrote Because He Lives, we wrote that because of our baby who was born at the end of the 60s. He was born in 1970, and the Vietnam War had just torn up the country. Uh, the drug culture was um, really in full swing, and and we looked at this little baby and said, you know, if it's like this now, what will the world be 
you know, in 17 years when he has to face it. And so we wrote how sweet to hold our newborn baby and feel the pride and joy he gives, but greater still, the calm assurance. This child can face uncertain days because he lives, and because he lives, I can face tomorrow. We didn't think that that would be for anybody but us. But what we found was that everybody who holds a newborn baby, when has the world been stable? It's never been stable. It wasn't stable when Jesus was born. So we don't, we don't base our lives on the stability of the world, the secular world. We base our lives on the stability of, of knowing that because Christ lives, the resurrection is not only true for that one time shot in history. It is true in everything in nature. It's true in everything around us. Life wins. Life wins. So um, when we wrote that, we found, you know, of all the songs, that we thought were so personal, it has been the most universal. Education is, is one of my passions and one of the things at this stage in my life is, is uh, we do a, a weekend here on our campus for songwriters. We can only take about 65, so it's very intimate. And I bring in four outstanding professional songwriters from different genres. And each person who comes to that gets three hours with each of those uh, professionals plus two evening sessions and a, and a worship at the end of, um, of the weekend. So um, that is just to kind of nurture along serious new young songwriters. I think one of the things that is really troubling me right now is that songwriting has, the quality has gotten so low. Because I mean, I think we, we think if we get a guitar for Christmas, it makes us a songwriter. But song, songwriting is a discipline, and it starts with great poetry, reading, and uh, and understanding great literature. That feeds you into a, a high watermark, a level that you have to live up to if you're going to call yourself a writer. I just started a blog, and because so many great songs, and whether it's a musical, whether it's an evening, a concert evening, whether it's a homecoming taping, it all starts with an idea. And, and so I think at this stage of my life, I've kind of come full circle and I want to do a blog. I don't, I'm, I'll do it like randomly. I, it won't be like every day or every other day. But um, some of those great ideas, I think also work in, in what used to be called an essay or a, some kind of a commentary on just ordinary things. Great things come out of ordinary things. Great moments come out of ordinary moments. It is our ability to recognize it. If your baby woke up healthy this morning, cooing and laughing and eating his oatmeal, you know, that's a miracle. Try a baby that can't do any of those things. I mean, every single thing is a miracle. And if it is a child, who has special needs. I have never seen a Down syndrome child that doesn't know something we don't know. They are so loving and forgiving and they're connected in a spiritual way sometimes that people who think they're smart are just are not. 
They're not connected like that. Everything in our lives is to say something to us that is eternal. Gloria is committed to helping people see the beauty in the ordinary and to get the most out of their days. She herself starts each day with Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Actually, Sarah sent me a copy of that years ago when she was just trying to get it out. And nobody knew it from Adam. And it was on my counter right here in my kitchen where I am right now. And it's such a joy to see all these years later how God has blessed that little book. Here's what it said this morning. As you go through this day and I've gifted that I've gifted to you, look for signs of my abiding presence. I am with you, watching over you continually. On bright, joyful days, speak to me about the pleasures I provide. As you thank me for them, your joy will expand abundantly. On dark, difficult days, grasp my hand in trusting de- dependence. I will help you. You are my beloved. So many times the, 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 the nitty-gritty, silly things of life get right in front of us. And if we've learned anything from these two recent hurricanes, is how many people said, okay, that's just stuff. I can replace the stuff, but I can't replace my children. I can't replace my mother. I can't replace my husband. You know, it makes you get your priorities reshuffled to, okay, what matters? What really matters? Now, as we forget about the hurricane and we get everything all cleaned up and we get our houses all shiny again, then we'll tend to think that we're in charge and that every little thing, every water softener that breaks and every tennis shoe that we don't get to have the new best whatever design is life or death. But I hope at least for a little while we will remember that it's not. That's not life or death. What's life or death is we have this moment to hold in our hands and to touch as it slips through our fingers like sand. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow may never come. But we have this moment today. To enjoy insight, inspiration, and encouragement from Gloria Gaither's new blog, please visit gaither.com. We'll be back with the second half of our show after this brief message from Audible. As a special offering to you, the listeners of the Jesus Calling podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Find your favorite Sarah Young titles, including Jesus Calling and Jesus Always, in an audiobook version, and get it for free by trying audible.com. Check out a small sample of the Jesus Calling audiobook featured at the end of this podcast. To download an entire free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Jesus Calling. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash Jesus Calling for your full free audiobook. Now, on to the second half of our show. Our next guest is Dr. Emerson Egerich, the writer of the popular bestseller, Love and Respect. He and his wife, Sarah, have led Love and Respect conferences all over the world. He has a new book called Before You Hit Send, Preventing Headache and Heartache, that shows us how, in this world of instant communication, we can prevent misunderstanding and allow for understanding. Dr. Egerich has a special message about the book just for our Jesus Calling audience. After that, please enjoy a rebroadcast of Dr. Egerich's podcast from 2016. Greetings to the Jesus Calling podcast listeners. What a joy for me to again be part of this great broadcast and podcast, and uh, we're grateful for your focus on 
listening to the voice of Christ. I mean, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and it's a joy to know that so many of you have that tender, intimate relationship with him. Before we talked about love and respect in marriage and kind of set the stage for how love and respect based on Ephesians 5.33 is to, in some ways, be applied to husbands and wives. We've said that when a wife feels unloved, she tends to react in a way that feels disrespectful to her husband, though that's not her intent. And when he feels disrespected, he tends to react in a way that feels unloving to her. And they spin on what I call the crazy cycle. Neither are intending that, but that's what happens. That's kind of the felt need, though we all need love and respect equally. There's a tendency for him to filter it through the respect grid. 83% of the men say they feel disrespected during a conflict, whereas 72% of the women say they feel unloved. So the felt need tends to play itself out based on Ephesians 5.33. And in some ways, I've written a new book, Before You Hit Send, meaning uh, we need to think before we speak. And certainly Sarah and I have been married since 1973, and we still... <laughs> cross over and say things we ought not to say. You know, there was a woman who said, you know that little thing in the back of your brain that tells you not to say something before you say it? Yeah. Well, I I don't have that little thing. (laughs) Well, the truth is, we all have that little thing. It's that during heated fellowship, so to speak, during those moments of conflict, you know, we kind of just want to speak our mind. You know, I remember years ago saying, I want to give them a piece of my mind. And someone said, Emerson, you can ill afford to lose what little you have left up there. <laughs> but the challenge for us, particularly in this digital age, where a digital footprint is being left everywhere we are, and we may have children, loved ones, I'm burdened that this message, Before You Hit Sin, which is the name of the book, Preventing Headaches and Heartaches, that this would get in the hands of people who need to be thinking because Jesus said, uh, every careless word we're going to give an account for. I mean, we really speak before an audience of one. And you who participate in this podcast, you understand that you're seeking to listen to Christ. You're conscious of Christ. You're doing what you do unto Christ. Few of you perhaps violate uh, what the content of this book is about. You are sensitive to speaking um, after you have been thinking about the wise way to respond. But you have loved ones who may be stepping over on this, and there's a consequence uh, that is um, to be paid for the imprudence, uh, not the least of which is when we stand before the Lord on that day and have to give an account, because he said that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And so my words ultimately reveal my character, reveals who I am. And this is a huge thing. And I've tried to operate according to four questions that I use as a checklist, and I've been doing this since I was in college where I first heard three of the, of the four. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And I added, is it clear? Is it true, kind, necessary? Those three were attributed to Socrates, but we see this reflected in Scripture. The first two speak the truth in love. There it is. Be kind, be loving, and be truthful. I mean, truth without love is cruel. Love without truth is, um, you know, syrupy, superficial sentimentality. It gives people license to kind of do whatever they want. But then the idea of necessary, I mean, the idea of speaking according to the need of the moment. You know, there's a time to speak and a time to refrain from speaking. There are certain verses that we just kind of landed on. And in the fourth one, being clear, I thought I was true, kind of necessary, but people would say, what's your point again? <laughs> So, for me, writing it out, being sure I know what I mean, you know, I 
I remember saying, I know what I mean, I just can't say it. And someone said, if you can't say it, you don't know what you mean. Another, whoa, so true. So I try to write out everything, particularly if I'm upset about something. I wait, I, I write it out, and then I realize, you know, that was sarcastic, that was unnecessary, that expresses anger. They're going to misunderstand this, you know. And so, um, you know, I'll have Sarah read it, particularly if it's an, an emotional issue. And some of us are hitting sin, and then we end up in sin, uh, prior to uh, thinking. And again, this isn't rocket science. We know this. We learned this when we were four years old. We learned this in kindergarten. So it raises the question, why are we not operating according to this checklist? Is that which I'm about to say, both digitally as well as interpersonally, as well as over the phone? You know, this is what I call voice-to-voice, face-to-face, text-to-text. And why is it that I don't say to myself, hey, is this, is this the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Is this really kind? I mean, is it really going to sound loving and respectful? Is it, is it necessary? I mean, is it necessary at this time? Is it, is it necessary at all? And is it clear? I mean, is it clear to me? Uh, it, and if it's not clear to me, it's not going to be clear to the other person for sure. So why is it that we don't, we don't do that? Well, in part, I believe it's because we're upset at the moment, we're feeling hurt, we're offended. And I then lay out in this book things that we need to be aware of that cause us to cross the line. And this is happening with people of goodwill. You don't have to be a wicked, evil person to make a misleading statement, to be rude, to say what isn't necessary, and to be confusing. We can all um, err in those areas. So what contributes to us crossing the line? Because here's the deal. There is no backspace. There's no delete on digital information. Worldwide web means worldwide, and social media means it's social, and you really can't take it back. But we also, as I said, have to give an account to the Lord. Particularly as this relates to marriage. What a beautiful set of checklists. You know, is that which I'm about to say to my spouse really true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? And is it clear? And if it's not, why? And is it worth crossing the line? I make the case in the book that it's never never worth compromising any one of these. And we also invested major dollars in research, and all four of these are distinct. In other words, they're like four legs to a table. Remove one one leg and the table collapses. They are distinct. There's not a crossover. True is different than kind. Kind is different than necessary. Necessary is different than clear. You have to have all four in place. Do three of the four, and there's going to be a breakdown of communication. There's going to be a ruptured relationship. Well, I hope this inspires you. And uh, would you pray that the Lord gets this message to this culture because we can see the political front, all the things that are going on, and the damage that uh, is happening as a result of people saying things that would have been left better unsaid. You know that little thing in the back of your brain? Well, it's there, and this checklist of four enables us to operate with wisdom. To find out more about Dr. Egrich's new book, Before You Hit Send, Preventing Headache and Heartache, please visit loveandrespect.com. Now, enjoy a rebroadcast of Dr. Egrich's message from last year. The word that I have then for every believer is, your marriage may not be what you want it to be, and it may never be what you had hoped it to be. But that doesn't mean that what you're doing in that marriage is a waste. In fact, you, you, because of the difficulties, can do marriage even better than you would have done it had you been in a perfect marriage. 
You can be this loving person because you're loving Christ. You can be this respectful person because you're reverencing Christ. And there will come a day when the Lord Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome to the Experience Jesus Calling podcast. Dr. Emerson Egrich is an internationally known public speaker on the topic of male-female relationships. Dr. Egrich and his wife, Sarah, developed the Love and Respect Conference, which they present to live audiences around the country. My name is Emerson Egrich, and my wife, Sarah, and I have been doing the Love and Respect Marriage Conferences since 1999. Also wrote a book called Love and Respect for the Married, and uh, we have been on a wonderful journey serving couples across the country and around the world, and very grateful for uh, the privilege of doing this. I was born in Peoria, Illinois, uh, grew up there until age 13, at which time my mom felt that I needed to be sent to a military school. <laughs> so from age 13 to 18, I attended Missouri Military Academy, and the backstory on that is that my mom and dad uh, divorced each other when I was one. Uh, they remarried each other uh, a year or two later, uh, realizing that divorce was not the remedy. Uh, but then they separated for five or six years uh, and then came back together when I was in the third grade. Uh, the issues that they had obviously spilled over and affected me, and I think that was one of the reasons that Mom felt I needed to go to military school because she could see a collision coming with my dad. Uh, we were not Christ followers. We you know, would go to church every so often, Easter kind of thing maybe, and Christmas. Uh, it wasn't until I was 16 at Missouri Military Academy that some leader at a local church gave tickets to cadets to go see a movie called For Pete's Sake, which was put up by Billy Graham. And there I heard the message that God loved me, that Christ died for me, that, that I was a sinner in need of uh, forgiveness, and uh, that I could receive that, but I needed to receive Christ into my life, that he would come into me, and the invitation was given. And uh, at age 16, my eyes were opened to understand who Christ was, his death on the cross, and the significance of that, and I uh, personally invited him into my life. And because I came to Christ through Billy Graham, I made inquiry as to where he went to college and found out that he went to a Christian school called Wheaton College in Chicago area. I didn't even know that there were Christian colleges. And so um, applied and was accepted and uh, sat in Bible classes that freshman year and taking it all in. My mom was watching me, my dad was watching, my sister was aware of things going on in my life, and my brother-in-law, who's a professor, and my freshman year, my whole family received Christ. My mom came to Christ first, and then my sister, and then my dad, uh, and then my brother-in-law. So you combine the marital difficulties of mom and dad with my own curiosity, and I think much of that blended together with a, a real interest in not only knowing what the research points out, I eventually got a PhD in family-related studies, uh, so there was a fascination with research, but also the privilege of studying scripture. I began to look at what the Bible said about male and female. Jesus said we were created male and female, and for instance, 1 Peter 3, the husband is to live with his wife in an understanding way since she is a woman precisely because of her femininity. God calls the husband to conduct himself in a certain way. And so I began to unpack all the scriptures dealing with men and women, which became extremely fascinating and really is the uh, text in the book, Love and Respect. There is this challenge before us to, you know, 
make sense out of our past. Certainly, I can see that the Love and Respect book came out of that. And uh, I allowed those past events to affect me, but to try to make sense out of them in order to serve people. And one of the reasons that I wrote the Love and Respect book is that I saw something in Scripture that really was being ignored on the marital radar screen. It had apparently been removed. You know, we had a period there 30, 40 years, several decades, where the focus was on loving the wife, happy wife, happy life. You know, things can become imbalanced. Like on a teeter-totter, it can be anything but balanced. It's lopsided. And I think there were years that women felt that they were not being understood, that they were not being loved. I think what happened is that spilled over into the church, that basically men were jerks, men were idiots, men didn't get it, men were unloving. And in the process, the message was men are inadequate and we don't respect them. And that message, men are inadequate and we don't respect him, hits at the core of who men are. There is this profiling of the male, and yet men serve and die for honor. Men are highly motivated by honor, give their very lives for honor. So the disconnect between how women feel about men and how men feel within their own souls was light years away. And so in my study of Scripture, I saw something that put this idea of respect back on the marital radar screen. But there's a lot of landmines with that in that when you quote Ephesians 5.33, husbands love your wives, and there's no debate on that, and then wives respect your husbands. So here you have this discovery in Scripture as well as in the social research that I thought, you know what? We've removed this uh, totally. So what we sought to do is put that back on the marital radar screen and in the process tried to avoid all the landmines that accompany that message. And so one of the challenges for us is to redefine what love is and uh, biblically and not just culturally. We have just huge misunderstandings and one of our roles is to help couples mutually understand each other. Most conflicts are the result of honest differences of opinion, honest differences in preferences. And so neither are wrong. They're just different. One of the things that we found over the years were the emails coming to me from women who had attended our Love and Respect conference. And what was exciting is that these women heard the, the respect side of the message. And women, again, are very teachable, very hungry. They want to improve their marriages. There's very little pushback on the respect idea. There is pushback, but you know, once people engage me on this, they realize, wait a minute, this makes perfect sense. One of the things that m women began to do is they applied this to their husband with great impact. They said, you know what, I've got sons, and uh, I think this applies to sons. And so they turned their attention to what I call respect talk toward their boys and were absolutely blown away, and they began to write me. Hundreds and hundreds of women were telling me. And so this book, Mother and Son, that I just wrote called The Respect Effect, is a compilation of these letters and also the biblical base for the teaching. It is uh, my prayer that this book could uh, serve mothers and parents uh, well. I know many teachers have written me who have applied respect in their classroom, and it has revolutionized the way in which uh, the classroom is conducted because typically boys are the reasons for the social difficulties in that classroom setting. But as they applied the respect message, they were blown away. They listen, they stay connected, they don't resist to the extent that they did when they are treated with disrespect. You know, one of the things we try to say to people is that we're on the crazy cycle. Without love, she reacts without respect. Without respect, I react without love, and we spin on this baby. We practice what we preach. And so we uh, are always try to be transparent. 
saying to people, look, you know, no one's going to do this perfectly. 1 Corinthians 7, 28 says, if you marry, you have not sinned, but you will have trouble. <laughs> and that verse needs to be put on every refrigerator. So here we have the, the challenge of being transparent at the same time, saying, look, these principles do work. You don't have to stay in the crazy cycle that my mom and dad were on. And there is a way out of this. Sarah and I have been doing the conference, you know, since 99. And so, you know, we are all believers in this message and the difference that it can make in, in a person's life. Sarah Egerich is a great believer in intercessory prayer. Both she and her husband have witnessed the power of prayer in their lives and in the lives of those they love. Sarah endeavors to help others find strength and peace in God's presence through prayer and sharing Jesus' calling. Her spiritual gifts are serving, hospitality, and certainly is devoted to prayer. She has the section on the practical application that she helps couples in our conferences. For years, we averaged about 1,800 at our conferences, and so she's developed just a tremendous presentation that people really value. They'll even come up to me and say, your presentation wasn't bad, but Sarah hit it out of the ballpark. So, you know, we definitely are grateful for what she is doing publicly and how she's wording that. Jesus calling and the excitement, you know, is clearly there. And Sarah has given that as a gift. She has, there for a period, she was every day with Jesus calling. It is perhaps the number one devotional she gives away, more than the devotional that I wrote. <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, uh, tremendously excited about this and has been for years. In fact, that book came out the year Love and Respect came out. So, uh, you know, it's been a long journey on that, but people have appreciated that. And We've appreciated it. I know that some people have wondered, you know, well, you know, is is this uh, Jesus speaking to Sarah Young, and is it something that, you know, is biblically accurate? She would never have claimed that that's the case. It's really, the beauty of it is all of us meditate on Scripture and seek the Lord's application to our lives. As I, I pastored for 20 years, exposited the Scripture, and all of us realize there's a text and context and a text out of context is a pretext, as we say. There's a place for rightly dividing the word of truth. So then I think Sarah Young just simply said, you know what, I'm going to kind of personalize that a little bit to make myself accountable to what I sense the Lord was saying to me. I say that because, you know, she's never claimed that this was, you know, Jesus audibly speaking to her. We've applauded that approach, and I think everyone who reads it understands that and uh, is benefited from it. We've always received positive feedback from people who have uh, gone through this. I, I don't know of anybody that said it wasn't meaningful. It's short, it's to the point, it's got the scriptural references, it is a prayerful approach. It, it has been something that, you know, most say, you know, the reading today simply was the perfect thing that I was going through. I mean, we hear that kind of comment made. So everything that we've encountered has been positive. I mean, evangelicals who love Scripture, who are submitted to the authority of Scripture, and, um, you know, get the point that Sarah Young is making here. And and uh, she is seeking to bring the Scriptures uh, in a very personal way. We commented the fact that, you know, we really don't always do that in the church. We don't bring that kind of application to the heart and to the Monday through Friday lifestyle. And and what difference is this really going to make to my heart and mind and soul? And I think Sarah Young has done an excellent job in helping people bridge that, where they may find difficulty in doing that. She has really brought that, I think, um, front and center 
and it has been appreciated by many people. Emerson and Sarah continue to take their ministry to all parts of the world, teaching couples the biblical principles of love and respect. You can do marriage God's way even if your spouse isn't responding to you. You can be a loving husband even if your wife isn't respectful. You can be a respectful wife even if your husband isn't loving. But it, it raises the question, why in the world would any of us want to do that? Because the Christ follower sees Christ standing beyond the shoulder of one spouse. That I ultimately love Sarah, not because I'm loving Sarah as an end in itself, I'm actually demonstrating my love for Christ as I love Sarah. And Sarah isn't respecting me as an end in itself, she's actually reverencing Christ. She's seeing Jesus beyond my shoulder. And, and the believer needs to realize that. And what's beautiful, even if your spouse doesn't respond, the Lord is going to reward us. Whatever good thing each one does, this he'll receive back from the Lord. That nothing is wasted. Everything matters. Everything counts. Our featured passage from today comes from the July 24th entry of the Jesus Calling audiobook. Thankfulness opens the door to my presence. Though I am always with you, I have gone to great measure to preserve your freedom of choice. I have placed a door between you and me, and I have empowered you to open or close that door. There are many ways to open it, but a grateful attitude is one of the most effective. Thankfulness is built on a substructure of trust. When thankful words stick in your throat, you need to check up on your foundation of trust. When thankfulness flows freely from your heart and lips, let your gratitude draw you closer to me. I want you to learn the art of giving thanks in all circumstances. See how many times you can thank me daily. This will awaken your awareness to a multitude of blessings. It will also cushion the impact of trials when they come against you. Practice my presence by practicing the discipline of thankfulness. Hear more great stories about the impact Jesus Calling is having all over the world. Be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling podcast on iTunes. We value your reviews and comments so we can reach even more people with the message of Jesus Calling. And if you have your own story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Visit JesusCalling.com to share your story today.